Blog Talk Radio. Again, Paul and I are, you know, we, 
obviously not a, on the scale that you are in your writing abilities, but we love to write. And we, you know, we're, we're performers and, you know, we get in front of the media once in a while. So, so to us, it's like you, you look for things like what has happened to you and you kind of say, well, what's going forward? Do you think it's going to mean, is it giving you obviously notoriety, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, no, it's, it was a good year for stuff like that, exposure. But, you know, as Paul will tell you, I frequently expo- expose myself. But, uh, oh yeah, we, we've seen it all, and I'll tell you, I can I can vote for the fact that he's Irish. <laughs> oh man, here we go. A lot of things happen there at the pub. Well, listen, you probably you know I, I the reason for this call is I just finished. I told you, you know, I wanted to jump on this opportunity as fast as I can. We met at the pub last night, and I've mm-hmm. had this in mind. I've told Paul about it for a bit. I. Uh, I'm a fan of Malcolm Gladwell and his books, The Tipping Point and Blink, mm-hmm. etc. Don't always agree with him, but uh, I think he, he ventures out into areas that are very fascinating. In his latest book, David and Goliath, he talks about the fact that what we think is the underdog, it, uh, we are mostly um, misconceived and certainly surprised over and over again how the ability of the underdog to conquer the giant uh, happens and he, he has numerous cases. I mean, he starts with the the biblical story of David and Goliath, and he says that just to, to set this up, that David in no way was a mismatch for Goliath. Goliath was the underdog in essence. He just because of his size and his strength, and mm-hmm. in the way he was uh, protected by armor, etc. The slingers, I mean, I didn't realize this. These guys could fire a rock like uh, a marksman today with a rifle, mm-hmm. and, and so. Absolutely. Yeah, so he's he's prancing around, and everybody thinks he's going to get it, but he has no intention of getting anywhere near uh, Goliath and be getting into his grips, and then you know being, he would have been killed. So he just keeps flinging rocks until he hits him in the head, and the guy goes down. And mm-hmm. so as the story progressed, it was taking people's you know, and you know my personal story. I mean, I grew up in Roxbury, lost my leg, and instead of looking at that as a liability, it becomes an asset. Well, he gets to the, this chapter on Ireland, and I immediately thought of you because you you know the situation there. You lived there, you wrote from there, and he made proposed a situation. There were two economists that had written a paper for the Rand Corporation saying in essence, that any, any uprising, any t- acts of terrorism or anything, if they are met with unparalleled force, that, that in and of itself, that, um, that equation of a reaction to uh, a, a, a terrorist uprising and just overcoming with incredible force is enough to quell any kind of a disturbance and not, no other variables need enter the equation. And what Gladwell says is they totally ignored people's feelings. And he, they talked about the, the situation in Northern Ireland, that they, it's getting out of control. England's got a problem. So they invite the army over to put this thing down. And instead, the army, from what he says in the book, the army starts to obviously become jaded and take sides with the North. Absolutely. Yeah, they took right. sides. And, That's the biggest problem. Uh, and, what was supposed to take a few weeks, what, took how many years, 20 years or so? Oh, God, no, more than 30, really. I mean, the the, the first shots, well, you could argue the troubles began in 66 when loyalists started killing Catholics at random. Um, 
that most people would point to 68 when the civil rights uh, marches were beaten off the streets. So the idea of them being able to emulate the American civil rights movement sort of ended when the local uh, police and the locally recruited militia, which was overwhelmingly Protestant and Unionist, began beating civil rights marches off the streets. Uh, that gave rise to the more fanatical, violent people from the militant arm of Irish republicanism. And by 1969, all hell had broken loose. And the following year, the provisional IRA, what we came to know as the IRA, had formed and uh, went on the offensive. And like you mentioned that the British Army came in there. And I always say that with the lost opportunity, I would compare it to the feds showing up in the South in the 60s when the when Southerners, led by their sheriffs, their mayors, and their governors, said, we don't want them coloreds in here. Well, the the force of the federal government here in America went down there, namely in, in the name of the FBI and other law enforcement officials and U.S. Marshals, and basically said, all you hillbillies can step aside because you're not in charge anymore. We are. And they basically put their, the bigots in their place. And as you know, history folded and, and unfolded from there. The difference in Northern Ireland is when what you would call federal authorities, or at least national authorities from Britain in the form of the British Army came in, not only did they not push the bigots aside, they became more or less the armed faction of them. And they didn't challenge the bigotry, they didn't challenge the open prejudice and open discrimination uh, practiced by the local authorities. They didn't challenge the police who were clearly taking sides and were allowing loyalists to burn nationalist neighborhoods, uh, just standing by and allowing that to happen because it suited their purposes. And that was the lost opportunity. The British army should have come in and the British establishment should have come in and told the Protestant Unionist hierarchy that you guys had your chance, you screwed it up, and you can step aside because we're taking over now. That's what the American authorities did. The British authorities missed that chance. Right. And, vi and, and violence, filled, violence filled the void. And the IRA, the biggest recruiter from the, uh, for the IRA was the British government. Beginning with... Beginning right. with internment in 1971, when ordinary Catholics were, were rounded up, uh, along with IRA members. Not that they didn't get IRA men, it's just that they cast a net over the entire nationalist community because they demonized the entire nationalist community and basically said that if you're there, that you, you're either in support of the IRA or you're not doing enough to get rid of them, so tough shit. And um, they, they basically rounded ordinary people up. And that really, that was a boost for the IRA because even people that were not predisposed to violence. Uh, so I know some young men from that era who said, you know, well, if they're going to arrest me and charge me with being in the IRA anyway, anyway I might as well join the IRA. Um, and then obviously for the next 10 years culminating with Margaret Thatcher's ham-fisted uh, handling of the hunger strikes in 1981, the British authorities did everything they could to keep the IRA relevant and provide them a steady stream of volunteers. Um, the IRA would never have been able to exist without the ham-fisted, backward, uh, bigoted approach by the British authorities in the 70s. Wow. So, uh, Other than that, I think they were great. 
the tea, the crumpets, the queen, everything else was tremendous. <laughs> Yeah, Paul, what, did you go outside to go to the bathroom or something? No, I'm here. Uh, oh, okay. I thought, you were, on, I thought you were on, like, one of those Sports Illustrated phones. No, not at all. We're working with the best we can here with this Internet stuff. But uh, So my question is, is that, you know, Gladwell's intention was that by, by doing that, exactly mm-hmm. what you say is happening, they only festered and fostered the thing even more. Well, I agree with that. Unfortunately, I'm at the disadvantage of not having read um, either the book or that chapter. But if you're summarizing it as he uh, approaches it, I would have to agree with him. Um, like I said, I, that, that, and I have to stress that I am not excusing IRA violence. I'm explaining the context in which it took place. Right. And if not for the uh, the failures of the British state, the IRA never would have existed. But that doesn't mean I supported violence. I actually thought violence was and it is incredibly counterproductive for what the IRA's goals were when they wanted a united Ireland. Uh, it strikes me you do not convince Protestant Unionists that they have a place in Ireland by killing them. It uh, doesn't work that way. And I think the violence of the IRA has actually put off by generations what they actually see. Uh, to to accomplish, which is a united Ireland. I don't know if there will ever ever be one in my my lifetime, but I know if there was a chance, it was not going to happen by by killing people. That just <laughs> that isn't how it works. Right. So you know, one one step, you know, one answer to violence with more violence only escalated it more and more. Absolutely. Now he the, the turning point for him came years later. When and I forget the incident. It's been a while since I read the book, but he said that at some point, the you know the, the, what you saw was exactly what you described: the British coming down on on the Catholics, the Catholics responding with the uh, IRA, and this went on for years. And then all of a sudden, he said there was an incident where they had quested off an area of the Catholic town and didn't let anybody in there, and the. And, the, and, and again, it was, and they weren't just going after the perpetrators. The the, the normal everyday person, the, the innocents, yeah. were by, were now affected by this because they quartered them off, yeah. and they weren't allowing any food or anything else in. Right. It was Operation Motorman, and it was. It's unfair to compare it to what the Nazis did uh, in in Warsaw, but it was the same mentality. It was the ghettoization of nationalist yeah. communities. And again, it, it was this sweeping uh, charge that anybody that lived where the IRA existed was either tacitly or openly supportive of the IRA, and that's just not true. Um, the, the IRA never had, um, you know, huge swaths of support outside some of the poorest sections of Belfast, whether you're talking about Bally Murphy or Andy Anderson Town or, um, you know, play. Places where, uh, and and it's no it's no mistake or a coincidence that the support for the IRA was strongest in areas where they were very vulnerable, where Catholics were very vulnerable to loyalist attack or to police um, uh, brutality uh, or to a combination of both. Um, so in, in those areas where 
if you lived right next to a loyalist area, say, you know, like an, on the Springfield Road or something, and the loyalists were right over the right over the horizon on the Shankill Road, um, you didn't believe, you didn't trust the the the, the uh, police to support you, the Royal Ulster Constabulary. And so you would have turned to the IRA as as, as protectors. I mean, it's just it, that's just the way it is. Now that didn't mean that people who did that shared the IRAs rather, particularly the provisional IRAs rather uh, grandiose Marxist come Irish Republican dream of a 32 county so- socialist republic. Um, I would think hardly anybody in those volatile areas thought about that in those political terms. The reality is they were afraid loyalists were going to kick in their doors and kill them. So they supported the IRA. I would have, if I lived on Springfield Road in 1970, 71, you bet your butt I would have supported the IRA. Because I knew they were the only guys with guns who were on my side. Exactly, exactly. But uh, this one particular incident, he said that when they had quarters it off, they weren't allowing any food in or out. And the, the mothers from the surrounding neighborhoods uh, they, you know, started to empathize, obviously, with the situation that the people were literally starving. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, all of a sudden, and he, and he de- describes one woman in particular who really tried to stay away from the thing as long as she could. But when she mm-hmm. started to see, you know, and this was his whole point, was that these economists and the and the, the British accepted the this model that these two you know idiots had written that you know it's simply a matter of uh, plugging in the right variables to get the, re- the required results. They didn't account for <clears throat> feelings and how deeply feelings would go. So this mother who's trying to stay out of it is now becomes a, an, an activist, and and again not a violent one, but she's now determined to bring food into that ghetto, mm-hmm. and she starts recruiting all of these mothers. And they meet with resistance from the police and the the British Army. And that one act, he said, was the part. He says, up until then, it was, and and, and you know better than, and this is one of of the reasons I want to ask you, it seemed to be tit for tat for years, right? I mean... Yeah, it did become a very cyclical kind of violence. And it became kind of three-headed in the sense that, the Republicans, whether it was the IRA or the Irish National Liberation Army, um, they would commit back acts of violence. The Loyalists would commit acts of violence, generally targeting ordinary soft civilian targets. They didn't really engage the IRA per se. Um, they killed a lot of civilians, uh, thinking that if they kept killing Catholics, that the Catholic community would put pressure on the IRA to step down. Of course, that never happened, uh, nor would the, I mean, it actually fed, uh, when loyalists killed ordinary civilians like that, it actually propped up the IRA, as I explained, that ordinary working class people in Belfast, Derry, wherever, would have seen the IRA as their protectors. Uh, And then, obviously, the British state, in the form of the locally recruited police and militias, and then supported by the uh, British Army, they were engaged in their own battles, mainly directed at the IRA. Um, they weren't quite so concerned about the loyalists because, again, they thought that played, they would have shared the loyalist view that if enough ordinary Catholics got killed, the community support for the IRA would shrink and the problem would be solved that way. Um, but the other problem that really undermined that thinking is that there were many in state authority 
whether it be the police or whether it be the locally recruited militia, uh, and obviously some people in the British Army who actually were uh, actively colluding with loyalist paramilitaries, militaries, both to kill senior members of the IRA, uh, members of Sinn Féin, the, the political arm of the IRA, and then just ordinary Catholics. Um, and, you know, there was denial of that for many years. And one of the things we've learned, I think, in the in the 15, or now almost 20 years that have evolved since the, um, the, the IRA ceasefire in 94 and the peace process that followed it, there was an awful lot of collusion. Uh, there was a lot of state collusion. Um, and and state authorities, uh, police, army, uh, engaged in you know extrajudicial killings uh, and letting loyal, giving loyalists information, helping them target people. It was a very very dirty and nasty war, and on, on all sides. I mean, the IRA did some horrible horrible stuff and committed war crimes. Um, the funny thing is the the British authorities, particularly Thatcher would not acknowledge that they were like combatants. They were just criminals, that she tried to criminalize them. That's why the hunger strikes took place. They saw themselves as politically motivated fighters. Um, and, and, you know, but the IRA, if you accept that they engaged in a war and they insist that they did, they committed all sorts of war crimes, including the, you know, the abduction and murder and secret burial of Jean McConville, who was accused of being an informer and who was taken away from her 10 kids. And uh, her body was not found until 2003. And that's a story that, you know, lives on because uh, several members of the IRA have publicly alleged that it was Jerry Adams, the Sinn Féin president, who then, as an IRA commander, um, instructed them to abduct and kill and secretly bury Jean McConville. So that, that's just one example of a murder that resonates today, as do many of the murders in, in, in Northern Ireland, because it is such a small place and it's very hard to find um, people that are not so still emotionally involved in a lot of what happened to victims. And that said, the, the majority of victims on the nationalist side tended to be poorer. Um, and the middle, it, it, it was a war fought mainly by the working class and the poor. And uh, the loyalist side, uh, or I mean, a lot of the people that were killed from the, the, the middle class, the only middle class people that traditionally were killed in the conflict were like police officers um, and people that or they might have been middle class, you know, whatever, um, not businessmen, but they might have been merchants. They might have been butchers. They might have been, you know, somebody who ran the local um, pub and they would have been in the UDR, um, which was the locally recruited militia. And they would have been targeted by the IRA, too. But like I said, it's I've, I've listened to people on all sides try to claim that one side was worse than the other, or one side inflicted more violence and suffering and wrongful killings than the other. Once you start get going down that road and start counting the bodies and, and assigning um, blame, I think you've lost the argument. I mean, let's just exactly. let's just stipulate that everybody killed everybody. Exactly. When you know when you know if you read these these accounts of you know the history of warfare. That the longer the the war goes on, the more brutal it becomes because mm -hmm. it just escalates and escalates. And where you don't even look at the person as a person, it's just uh, the enemy, and it has to be taken out. And I think that was the, the one of the points of his book is that the conventional wisdom is you know is what started to started the whole thing was that the the one who could wield the the most force you know the mm -hmm. most violence would be the winner. Instead, it's right. just it just 
created more and more reaction. And I don't know if if you're familiar with, again, I, it's been a while since I read the book, but it seemed that once once the mothers, the mothers just loaded up baby carriages, put the babies in the baby carriage and put food in there and went down to confront that they were going to get involved now. And that right. was that that action of this, again, more of a peaceful thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't go down there armed with guns. They went in down there armed with food and with a concern only to feed the people who were being, you know, sequestered and quadrant right. off. And that is what inflamed, you know, he compared it to some, you know, the, the scene, um, in fact, that, that was the, the crossover. The scene, the, the picture that got painted on the, um, uh, posted all over the, the media of the dogs, uh, the two German shepherds attacking a young black boy. Mm-hmm. And that, that one picture was enough to tip your sure. scale. And well, I mean, are you, are you familiar with that incident that when these mothers, you know, did that? Situation? Yeah. Oh yeah. That's very well known as a big issue back then. And yeah, I mean, I mean, very often it was women in Northern Ireland. I mean, it was, you know, obviously a fight waged ma- mainly by my men, although there were certainly some serious and senior members of the IRA who were women. Um, not so, not so on the loyalist side, and certainly not on the military. There were some women uh, police officers and uh, militia members who were killed. But um, it, I, it strikes me when we talk about this, whether we're talking about what happened in Ireland, what ha- is happening uh, with the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, what is that? All these conflicts, to me, are just—they um, are the result of, of a failure of politics a failure of diplomacy or a failure to get it. And whenever they're resolved, it becomes uh, a success at politics. I mean, the the Northern Ireland situation was just, and it would not have happened without American involvement. It's one of the few places you could point to in the world in which American involvement actually really did resolve the thing, and there's no way it would have ended without American involvement. And uh, George Mitchell was a, a steady hand in those negotiations over a period of years, but you know, it it, it come to, it came down to a political settlement. It came down to people accepting stuff that made their stomachs turn. Whether it was uh, the uh, allowing all the paramilitary prisoners to leave jail within two years of the agreement. I mean, these some of these guys murdered people within you know previous five years and had had killed you know a number of people and had done some gruesome things. But you know. Um, the South Africans played a very big role, too, in helping the uh, Northern Irish players see the light. And I remember Martin McGuinness, who was a very senior IRA commander. I mean, I know people believe he was the chief of staff at one time, and obviously he became a, a leading Sinn Féin figure and uh, is, is a, uh, you know, the the deputy prime minister of the, or the deputy first minister, they call him, in Northern Ireland now. And uh, he he told me how impacted he was by meeting Mandela, and Mandela was basically telling him that you know because they would they would uh, dickering with the British over what to do with their weapons and whether they should discard them, they should bury them, how they should get rid of them. And he said Mandela said to him, you know, you guys are are getting hung up on the the reality is you don't want to give in to the people that have been your enemies all these years, but the reality is you. You don't make peace with your friends. You make peace with your enemies. And the only way you know you're, you're getting some places if you're doing something that you find distasteful and something yep. that you really don't want to do. And eventually the Northern Irish players got to that point. The interesting thing is that the Afrikaners, 
uh, Rolf Meyer, who was the leading um, uh, negotiator during the the the, um, the transfer from from apartheid to uh, democracy, uh, he was the leading um, negotiator for the Afrikaans, and he was very influential with unionists because they would have had a shared sort of sense of um, siege mentality, sort of the whereas you know the unionists are a pop are plural. Plurality in Northern Ireland, on the whole island of Ireland, they would be greatly outnumbered. They would only make up about 20% of the population. Um, in um, in 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 when he when the unionists met with Rolf Meyer, they saw a kindred spirit. They told the guy, they talked to a guy who had to make negotiations and compromises with people that they feared may overrun them. And obviously that didn't happen. I mean, South Africa is not the greatest example in terms of a, but it went from you know an apartheid system, which was obviously wrong, to a democracy, which is obviously imperfect, and they have all sorts of problems there. Um, although I'd say most many of the problems have been because the people that followed Mandela, I don't think, could wear his jockstrap. I think Mandela was a whole different ball game than the guys that have followed him. Um, but you know the idea that that uh, that um, South Africa could make this transition in you know without a bunch of bloodletting, without a bunch of you know ANC guys going out there murdering villages of Africans who had who had done all sorts of terrible things to black people, that really gave the I think the unionists some belief that you know that they would not be retaliated against in a, a modern democratic Northern Ireland. In which you know, uh, majority rule could not be meant to impose things on the minority, which is what happened in Northern Ireland, which led to the problems in the first place. And um, so, I mean, I, I think Northern Ireland is a success story, uh, but I also think it's um, you know what we're talking about is where did it go wrong? And and I think Gladwell's right on this. I think it went wrong with the way that the British responded to it. To their credit, the British learned the lesson, and I think you know. He hasn't gotten an awful lot of credit yet, but I think in history he'll be judged very well is John Major, who succeeded Margaret Thatcher, and I think realized that you had to make these compromises right. um, and, and, and you had to make peace with your enemies. I mean, the IRA tried to kill Major. They, they actually fight, they, they had some mortars and hit the, uh, a cabinet meeting and almost killed him and the entire cabinet. And yet he was willing to, you know, he was willing to make comp. He would have actually done much more had he had a bigger uh, plurality or big, bigger majority in uh, the House of Commons because he could only remain prime minister as long as the unionists supported him. Uh, and obviously that gave them almost a veto over everything. But that that said, Major did an awful lot of things. And I was I talked to George Mitchell about this years ago, and he said that he believed that history would give Major a lot of credit, because right now Tony Blair seems to get the lion's share, and he, and, he, and he should, because this stuff happened on his watch when he was prime minister in, in Britain. But John Major did an awful lot to make that make it possible for Tony Blair to make the deal in the end. Yeah, and I think that's what Gladwell was saying, was this, this crazy idea that force and power would be the answer. And everybody, yeah. it was that way of thinking that, you know, was permeated for over 20 plus 30 years, and people wouldn't let go of that model. It never is. I don't think it ever is. I don't think it'll be the same in the Middle East. I just don't think, I think with all our dealings 
in um, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, force is not going to work. Um, yeah, you have to have it. I mean, let's not be Pollyannish here. In, the, in places like this, you would have to have a military response. Um, but I think Iraq is kind of a classic example. Doesn't? I mean, we have left a, a vacuum there in which people are fighting old wars, uh, ancient grievances between Muslim sects, and um, it, it just seems to me whenever you int- whenever you introduce military force into an equation, you're admitting that the politics hasn't gotten right yet. And uh, and then when you bring in the force, it makes it much harder to get the politics right because people revert to their respective camps and revert revert to form and wrap themselves in certain shibboleths and don't want to give them up. And uh, you know, I saw that in Northern Ireland. I'm seeing it today in the Middle East, and you know, we've seen it with our own eyes the past year in Iraq, which has really just gotten very very violent. Yeah, do you think that? Uh this is just going to be ongoing, or do you think there's, you know, as Gladwell seems to think that at least there's pockets of consciousness that seem to be expanding, allowing for, or at least, is, you know, realizing that this model of force, counterforce, is not going to be the answer. Do you think, do you see it, I mean, you've seen all these things, you deal with it every day, do you, do you see that there's any chance that the human race will get out of this thing? Or? Well, not in the short term, in the sense, I look at the the way um, we went into Iraq, and so and the, and the convenient um, excuse uh, among, particularly among Democrats, is to blame it all on George Bush. But you know, George Bush could only go the could lead the country in a way if the country was willing to to go there. I mean, I thought Iraq was an absolute, you know, disaster. I I just could not believe we were going to go to war to force a change. Uh, a, a regime change, knowing what we knew about the the uh, the situation involving the the Sunnis and the Shia there, that we were going to, I said, well, wait a minute, you know, if you you extrapolate it, we are going to empower the people that hate us the most and are aligned with Iran, and and we we could create a whole nutty dynamic. Why are we doing this? But, you know, George Bush had the support of almost every Democrat. I mean, Teddy Kennedy said no, but very few did. Uh, they said, let's go. And it's hard, particularly when you get hit like we did on 9-11, it's very hard for people to stand up and say, this is not a good idea because you feel like you're unpatriotic. You feel like maybe you're the, you know, the next um, Neville Chamberlain. And, you know, we saw it in some of the saber-rattling that happened with Iran recently when Kerry was trying to, you know, get, or, or I'm sorry, with Syria. When when Kerry was trying to make a deal, he was threatening force, which you have to, and then he was trying to get a deal, and they were, they were competing claims. They were saying, well, now we look like wusses because we said we'd bomb them, and now we're not going to bomb them. And so, I, I mean, I think, in you know, it's... In our system of government, our system of politics, it's, it's, I think it's really hard to ever present a united front and saying, we don't want to go down this. I mean, I, my old pal Breslin, Jimmy Breslin, believes that if we brought back the draft tomorrow, we would never have another needless uh-huh. war. And I think yeah. he's right. I agree, I agree with that. And I, I frankly, personally believe in a draft. You know, and I say that as someone whose son is you know, just enlisted in the U.S. Army. But um, I, I believe that you know we should have a draft, and I think that if the rich people who start the wars 
had to send their own flesh and blood into harm's way, they would be much more reluctant to start a, a needless war. Now, that doesn't mean we would never have war, but we certainly wouldn't have the misadventure that we had in Iraq. And even to this day, go ongoing in Afghanistan, I have no idea why we're in Afghanistan right now. Building schools, trying to get girls educated, that's wonderful. That's not the job yeah. of the U.S. military. Exactly, exactly. You know, you know, I spoke to, and the problem is I um, had some business dealings with a guy who was a, in the, um, the Marine Corps in the reserves. Mm-hmm. And oh, the question was asked, well, is it difficult to get uh, recruitees? He said, no, 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 no. He says, the problem we have, the biggest problem the military has right now is to weed out the killers. He says, right. a lot of these people are coming in here for, you know, almost for sport. You know, right. they want to kill. They, so he says, we have to do all kinds of psychological, uh, you yeah. know, background checks and everything on these people because we want to temper this let, let's go hunting kind of attitude. Sure. So you're right. I mean, so when you're hiring mercen, basically you're hiring mercenaries. Well, we are. If we have an all, if we have an all volunteer force, I mean, you can dress it up, but at the end of the day, they're mercenaries. Um, yeah. But because you know, it's a career, and it's you're being exactly. paid to be a warrior, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I just think that in terms of, um, to me, in a in a democratic society like ours, I think it's grossly unfair that one percent of the population is required to fight these wars and multiple deployments. My nephew Greg, who was wounded in Afghanistan, you know, last year, we thought he was on his last, his third and final deployment. We just find out he's going back. Um, yep. He just got over his injury. He had a bad injury to his ankle. Has rehabbed and is getting new orders, and he's going out again. So, you know, hopefully he'll be the guy that turns off the light in Kabul. But, you know, he's going back for his fourth tour. He's He will have been away from home four years, the first four years of his, uh, or four of the seven years of his daughter, Kaylee. That's just obscene. Oh, my God. That's, yeah, that's sad. It's obscene. Sad. Well, listen, thank you so much. I think you've certainly shed light on a bunch of things that I was unfamiliar with. And, you know, it, it, and again, I, you know, this, uh, I'm fascinated when you do see, um, you know, a book like, like Gladwell's, where he's saying, you know, this this uh, this mindset that that seems to be carried on forever that you can simply overpower the little guy, uh, you're sadly mistaken because once the human spirit enters, once mm-hmm. you know, and 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 certainly the old models, the old paradigms of power and force, you know, in in what it breeds, have got to be changed. So. You know, hopefully we see more books like this, and, and you know, your testament, uh, uh, you know, adds credibility to, to his thesis. So, um, you know, I'm, well, I'm just... My uh, only my is, only uh, rejoinder as I leave this is that you guys need to do this live from the pub. <laughs> With a couple of Seriously. Guinnesses. What, what, what makes yeah, you think I mean, I'm you not get, the You get Bruce the American Indian to come over and chime in about the how he doesn't <laughs> recognize the Constitution. <laughs> oh, that's oh my God! You got to see that show. I've never seen that show. It's great. Well, you know, um, I'm, I, I, I'm with Bruce. If I was him, I wouldn't recognize the Constitution either. You're basically yeah. saying my you took my land and it's okay. Exactly. No thanks. <laughs> well, let's do that. Let's set this up in the pub if we could get through the acoustics and all of that. Do it. Now you're talking. All right, boys. Kevin, thank you. Thank you so right. much. I'm honored right. to have had this conversation. It's a great one.
Good man. Thanks, Tom. Okay, Thanks, thank Paul. Thank you, Kevin. Take care. See you guys. Bye. Bye-bye.